Well, the Apostle Paul had something that every single one of us wants. The ability to not lose heart. No matter what life threw up for him at him, the ability to not lose heart, to keep pressing on, in fact, to be renewed and strengthened and heartened. Who doesn't want that? Well, God has given us this part of the Bible that we might have exactly that. The ability to not lose heart, to endure. But this strengthening, this ability to not lose heart comes in a very specific context and that is in our life with God, to not lose heart in our life with God. See, to be human is to suffer. It's been happening all the way down through the ages and so every generation has had to figure out how to suck it up and push on in the face of hardship. You don't need the Bible to do that to kind of dig in and to be stoic in the face of hardship. In fact, you've heard that word, to be stoic. It comes from the philosophy, from the group of people who are actually active in the first century, the time of Paul's writing, Stoicism, the Stoics. And Paul is actually contrasting himself to the Stoics. The Stoics would take pride in themselves as they could rise above hardship. It was something that actually welcomed to go... Look at what I've got. It's the kind of when the going gets tough, the tough get going kind of thing. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about not losing heart in the gospel. Not losing heart with life, with God in the gospel. And I do want to point out that there is something very particular and unique about Paul that none of us will experience. He was an apostle, we'll see something of that in a moment, and his suffering was particular. And yet the same truths that enabled him to keep living, speaking and suffering for Jesus have been entrusted to us. And so I want to take us through three reasons that we might not lose heart in the God of the Gospel. Number one, because of the truth of the Gospel. Verse 1 there, chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Of course, he's referring to what we looked at last week, what's come previously, which is the ministry of the Spirit, which brings life, freedom, transformation. Because he has that, he doesn't lose heart. He goes on, verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Key to persevering in the Christian faith is confidence in the scriptures that bring us the gospel. Absolutely key for us to endure, to keep going, to not lose heart, is that we have confidence that what we have here What we have in the words of Paul is the true gospel from the Lord God himself. Lose confidence in that, we will lose heart. Dustin Kensrue is a prominent Christian musician, songwriter, pastor from the US. We sing some of his songs here in church. You'll see his name in the corner there. But tragically, he's one of the growing number of high-profile Christian leaders and pastors who no longer identifies with biblical Christianity. 
who was thrown in the tower. He's from the States. He's about my age. Many of you won't know him. Many of you will and, and love his music. And you see figures like this fall and it, it is quite sobering and shocking. Well, he's given up on biblical Christianity and he said that for years he bore with much of the Bible's teaching. Bore with it. And I quote, Begrudgingly, he bore with it begrudgingly, because it never sat well with me. But because I believe Scripture was inerrant, which means without error, because I believed it was true, I felt that I must just be missing something. But it pained me, and I would force it to the back of my mind, hoping I was wrong. Well, he could only do that for so long. And he came to a point where he actually, no, no, I, I can't accept that. I don't believe that it's true. An honest confession, a tragic one, but also not an uncommon experience for Christians. Is this really true? Um, as you kind of dig into what might have happened with Dustin Kensrue, and, and I'm speculating here, but it seems like he's offered suggestions that, that he's put a wedge, he's allowed a wedge to go between Jesus and Paul which is also not an uncommon thing. Jesus, I'm for Jesus, love Jesus. Jesus is about love. Paul, what a bigot, what a homophobe. I find him offensive and wrong. Is Paul bringing us the true gospel for us to stake our lives on? Well, one of the things to do if you do have that doubt and those deep, serious, lingering doubts is, this, is to not park it, not ignore it, not push it to the back of your mind hoping it'll go away. It'll bite. But to actually pursue answers, to seek confidence that what we have here is trustworthy and true. And one of the many things, but one of the many things to do there is actually consider the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Come back with me to Acts chapter 26. Paul's conversion story is given three times through the book of Acts. Here's the third one. Acts chapter 26 verse 15. It is one of the most radical events in Paul's life, uh, if not the, and one that has radically changed his life and human history, where he meets the resurrected Jesus. This is the man who's trying to kill Christianity, and he meets the resurrected Christ. Verse 15, I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now we'll see a number of connections here into our passage, but I want you to notice that Paul is personally commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus. Speaking about Paul, just flick back a couple of pages earlier. Chapter 22, verse 14. This is the second of the three accounts of his conversion. A man named Ananias was given words from God to go and speak to Paul. Chapter 20, verse 14. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen 
and heard. It's not uncommon to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul. I'm for Jesus. Nah, not Paul. You just can't do it. Or at least you can't do it and be consistent to what the Bible is holding out, the Bible who holds out this Jesus that you like. Paul is Jesus' man. Paul is Jesus' mouthpiece. And so, as we come back to 2 Corinthians 4, our passage, verse 2, Paul, being this man, having this experience and this commission from the Lord Jesus, he brings the word of Jesus, what does he say, verse 2? Without deception. He doesn't distort the word of God. He doesn't try and make it fancier or more popular or more engaging. He is just incredibly mindful that he speaks for Jesus and in the sight of Jesus. And so takes great care to set forth the truth plainly to commend his own conscience and others. Friends, as our world attacks the beliefs that we hold to that are based on the writing of Paul, don't lose heart. He speaks for Jesus. As your own thoughts and emotions, which are culturally shaped and understandable, we get, really, could that be? Don't lose heart. These are the words of the risen Lord Jesus. Be heartened that Paul, who wrote half the New Testament scriptures, has set the truth of God out plainly for us. They are a foundation to build our lives on. There's the first reason we are not to lose heart. The truth of the gospel set forth plainly in Paul. Secondly, we're not to lose heart because Paul doesn't lose heart because the gospel isn't just true, it is powerful. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Firstly, notice what the gospel does. See, the gospel is, just means news, news of who Jesus is and what he has done. That's the gospel, that's the news. But the gospel does something. It illuminates, it shines a light. What does it put a spotlight on? Have a look, verse 4. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This news, this gospel, brings someone to see just who Jesus truly is. This ordinary, uncultured carpenter, from humble, scandalous background, out in the sticks, that this man is the almighty God of the universe the creator and sustainer and saviour of all people. See, what is Christ's greatest glory? It's not his miracles. It's not his profound teaching. It's his cross. It's his death. It's his willingness to go to it so that he might stand under the judgment of God as a substitute Not for his own sin, but for the sin of wicked sinners like me, like you. And he might absorb in himself fully the right punishment that God would pour out on darkness, on wickedness. 
satisfy it completely so that he might, do you remember Acts chapter 26, bring about the forgiveness of sins. No matter what it is, how spectacular it is, forgiveness with God. To rescue someone from the power of Satan to bring them to God and to give them a place among those who are sanctified by faith, which means set apart. There's the glory of Christ, his cross. And the gospel brings, shines a light on that. It brings someone to actually see how glorious the cross is because we recognize our desperate need for it. That before God, our lives on their own, they are destroyed. Well, okay, Paul, say the Corinthians, if this gospel that you have is so glorious, then how come people reject it? How come there's unbelief? Seems to be what he anticipates there in verse 3. If it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. What's the reason he gives? Well, it's not because the gospel is deficient. Not true. Not because there's a spiritual thing going on, verse 4. The God of this age, which is a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. People's desperate need for his cross, his death, to see him as the image of God. Now, wow, if you read that slowly and carefully, that might raise questions for you. Really? Well, what does that mean? How can God judge someone and condemn someone if it was Satan who was blinding them and, and bounding them so that they couldn't see the light of it? That, that seems unfair. That seems unjust. We're not going to take time this morning to consider it. It raises the issue of agency. Who's acting? Who's responsible? Uh, We did go into it when we looked at Romans a few series ago, and we will no doubt come to it next term as we consider the book of Job. raises all of this stuff for us. But just know for now that Paul, the same writer, describes these Satan-blinded people elsewhere as those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. We willingly are blinded by Satan. So what is the hope for Satan-enslaved people? Well, it's not exorcisms. It's, it's not anything mystical or magical. There's, there's no ceremony around it. It is, verse 5, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. The only hope of being rescued from the clutches of Satan to God is the preaching of the gospel, which is presented here in its shortest form. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not you. You are not Lord. Your marriage, your family is not Lord. Your work and career is not Lord. Your possessions and experiences and lifestyle is not Lord. We've lived as though one or all of those are. Jesus Christ is Lord. How is this good news? If he's the one that we've actually rebelled against, rejected against, not lived with Lord as, because this Lord has lovingly and willingly gone to the cross for you to take your punishment upon himself. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he offers a moment, a moment for you to come back and not have to give an account for the darkness that you have contributed to. The sin against God. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. It is all about Jesus. If you're new with us checking these things out, it is all about Jesus. Push into him. Who is he? What has he done? What has he said? Paul here is quoting from the creation account in Genesis. We had it read, short reading there, a picture of nothing but God, of darkness, chaos. And God, his word is so powerful that he speaks, let there be light, and there was. Well, catch what Paul is saying about people here, about people who hear the gospel that Jesus is Lord. God makes new creations out of us. We'll come to that next week, chapter 5, verse 17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Dead to Satan's sin, the realm of darkness, alive to God and his kingdom of life. Friends, the gospel, the pure, plain truth of the gospel is God's power to rescue. And what I want you to notice is it's power, but it's power that is by grace. Here's why we don't lose heart in the Christian life. We have been powerfully rescued by grace, nothing of us. And look at it again. God made his light. It's nothing within us that he's tapping into. It's his light that he gave us the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the, in, the, in the face of Christ. Which means none of us can take any credit for any saving knowledge we have of Jesus Christ. None. It is all a gift of God. And if that gift came to us to rescue us out of the grip of Satan to himself, that, that's conversion, that's coming to Christ. It came by grace... It continues to be the way of grace. It, God doesn't just save us and set us on the path towards heaven and says, I hope to see you there. We'll see. That same powerful grace that rescued helpless and hopeless people is the same grace that sustains us to the end. And so if you're sitting here this morning going, oh, I don't know if I can keep going with Jesus, don't lose heart as you look to the grace, the powerful grace of God that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Don't lose heart in your own walk. But secondly, it'll mean we don't lose heart for those around us who are lost, who have walked away from the Lord, who are bound and blinded by Satan, willingly, but bound and in the grip of his deceptive lies. We won't lose heart for them. We won't lose heart as we continue to hold out the gospel to them, to speak it to them. Why? Because the same powerful word of God that created the world is the same powerful word on your lips as you share Jesus. The, the same powerful word that created the Son to burn at 15 million degrees is the same powerful words on your bumbling, stumbling lips as you talk about this Jesus, their Lord, your Lord, who died for them. That same word breaks into dark, cold, chaotic lives to bring light, to bring knowledge of God's glory in Christ, as it has with us 
Be reminded of that great power. Don't lose heart for those around you. Don't lose heart in giving yourself to a ministry that is proclaiming Christ as Lord. To to this ministry, to this church. But this afternoon we are baptising, I think Flu's taken a couple of people out, but 17 people we are baptising this afternoon. 17 people where we are recognising that great rescue of God, transformation. Come down and see it. Whatever's going on, come down and see it so that you might not lose heart. God is at work. He is saving. And as I've looked out just across the day, I've sent a couple of people, one at 8.30, Doc. Doc came to life about a year ago. And he came along with his wife. He was dragged along with his wife. And at the end of the first night, I said, how'd you go with that? He said, man, when I came in, I looked at where all the exits are and I worked out my exit strategy. (laughs) I worked out how to get here as soon as I... We're baptising him this afternoon as someone who's been rescued from Satan. I'm sorry to do this and put you on the spot, Jerry, but as I look at you, we're baptising Jerry this afternoon, who got married last week, a couple of weeks ago. We celebrated that on the screen last week. Who just a few months ago, his now wife calls me and says, will you marry us? Sure. But I want your husband to come to this thing we call life. I don't know if he will. He does. I ask him after the end of it, what was that like? He's like, I can't do the Irish accent. I won't even try. Dave can. But He said, I thought it was just going to be this small group of people sitting in a circle like AA. <laughs> you know? Just talking about their problems. And... Today we're baptising Jerry as someone who's been rescued from the power of Satan into the kingdom of God. Two fairly youngish as in 40, 50 men, (laughs) strong men, accomplished men, men who don't need any help. That's the deceptive lie of Satan that the gospel has broken through into. Don't lose heart in the ministry, any ministry that proclaims Christ as Lord. God is using it, it is powerful. Here's the third and final reason that Paul doesn't lose heart. And it's hope in the face of suffering. If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that suffering in all its forms is one of the key things that tempts us to lose heart with God. Oh, we'll find a way maybe to keep pushing through in life, but God, is he there? Is he good? I don't know. Three ways that Paul actually reframes suffering. Number one... He sees that it glorifies God. The weakness particularly that suffering brings. Verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. Paul describes himself as a clay jar. It's ordinary, it's cheap, it's unimpressive. You get it from Kmart, not Meyer. It, It doesn't handle the knocks. It's not supposed to. But it does. Verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Chase up chapter 6, chapter 11 later to see headlines of what he means by this. It's horrific. Um, we're, not, we're perplexed, but not in despair. Actually, just catch that. Perplexed. The Apostle Paul can relate to the what is going on God question. 
Really? Are you serious? How come? Why did my dear friend Demas, my partner in the work, abandon me? And on and on, perplexed, yet not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. He actually was. He was abandoned by pretty much everyone, but not Jesus, not the risen Lord Jesus. Struck down, but not destroyed. A picture of a boxer who's taken blow after blow after blow and has hit the canvas, wondering if they're out for the count. Now, I know that there are some of you here this morning who can quickly relate to how Paul describes life. To be perplexed, to be hard-pressed, to be persecuted, to be struck down. And wondering, can you go on? Well, Paul didn't throw in the towel with God because of verse 7. Because his weakness, his banged-up life showed the all-surpassing power was from God not himself. That God actually glorifies himself in the banged up, busted weakness of his people who continue to look to him. Why? Because it shows it's nothing impressive about us but him. Friends, as Christians, hardships are not the chance to show what kind of stuff you're made of. No, that's worldliness. That's satanic. That's stoicism. Hardships are the opportunity to point to what the power of your God is like. That it's all-surpassing. On your own, to continue with him, no way. But him and his power. I just want to say that many of you are an an encouragement to us regularly, ongoingly, giving us the opportunity to glory God. Why? Because you hang in there with Jesus. With great hardship. Which comes in many forms, but Your spouse who mocks your faith in Jesus makes it hard for you and the kids to get to church, yet you do. You encourage us. You give us the opportunity to glorify God. As your family falls apart, is in a mess, and yet you continue to cling to Jesus. As you grieve the loneliness that comes with singleness because you won't compromise and go with an unbeliever. You are a great encouragement to us and an opportunity for us to glorify God. The gift of singleness is not the gift of, I'm not interested in companionship and marriage. The gift of singleness is the gift from God that he might be enough in the midst of loneliness. You are a great encouragement to us and an opportunity for us to glorify God. Because you are a clay pot. And as we recognise this, The only thing that a clay pot can do is show off the treasure that it holds. This is the first way that Paul reframes suffering. Here's the second. And this is particularly as he embraces, all of this is, but particularly as he embraces suffering for the sake of Jesus, for the gospel. Uh, But he knows that it brings great blessing to others. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What's he talking about? Um, The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, that's the glory, and the way of the cross is the way of death. Jesus dies in order to bring life. So it's by embracing death that life comes in Jesus. And so Paul pictures himself as kind of, if you like, bottling the death of Jesus and carrying around 
in this bottle the death of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, which brought life in Jesus' body for others. He repeats it again, verse 11, and then explains it in verse 12. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Here's what I take it he means by those verses. So then, death is at work in us as he embraces, not literally dying though eventually, but, but the suffering and the, the, the cost for speaking for Jesus, living for Jesus. As, as he does that, death is at work in him, but life is at work in you, Corinthians, that he brought the gospel to. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul will do this. He will embrace hardship and suffering for the sake of Christ because he knows it's the way of the cross that brings life and blessing to others. Now he doesn't do it what is the grounds for it? He doesn't do it because of kind of sentimental grounds. He kind of feels good about it. He doesn't do it because of anything inspirational. You know, some pep, uh, pep talk or some hip, funny, engaging thing that his rabbi gave him on the weekend. It, it's none of that. What drives him? What's the grounds? Verse 14. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. The grounds for it is the resurrection, an empty tomb, an event in history, not in a vision, not in a metaphor, not in a poem, but in history. That means Paul is willing to embrace suffering for the good of others and a very particular kind of suffering. Suffering will come to us all in Christ, but actually embracing it, seeking it out for the sake of the gospel. I want to apply this quickly to us in two directions. Uh, number one, to be encouraged as you are carrying around the death of Jesus. None of us are Jesus. Paul wasn't Jesus. None of us are Paul. Uh, many of us are not even close to other men and women of faith through the ages, but, but many of us are seeking to embrace something of the death of Jesus, that is, the, the cost, the sacrifice to make his gospel known. In all sorts of ways, maybe in formal ways as you lead a growth group, it's costly every week, this group of people, and then to follow them up and to love them and to put... As you teach an EV kids class, oh, but I'm a school teacher through the week and I don't want to... But I will and for the same. Things that you say no to, good things even, so that you can focus on raising your kids in the things of the Lord. Money that you give away to gospel work that actually bites, that actually means you can't do things that you would otherwise do. Compassion children that you pick up, more compassion children. The death of Jesus that you carry around and more and more try and embrace the death of Jesus brings life to others. If you are doing this, if you are seeking to do more of this, don't lose heart. It is the way of your Lord, the way of Paul, as you bring life to others. But the other application is maybe you are like the Corinthians who had been blessed by Paul's costly ministry. Yet, and this is what Paul writes, they had chosen to distance themselves from him. 
to, to sit above him and go, no, nah, actually, I don't really like the look of that gospel that you're bringing. I don't want to get alongside you and embrace the same death. Is that you? Do you know the life and blessing of the gospel? But if you are honest before God, not before me, before, before God, there's nothing that could even remotely be called a bottle of death of Jesus that, that you actually seek out to bring blessing to others, the blessing of the gospel. You're not even close to it. You've received it. If that is you, then you need to hear the words of your Lord Jesus, pick up your cross. Because that is what he says coming to him looks like. And just by the by, at life, we make sure we say, people who are checking these things out, hey, Jesus says pick up your cross and die for him, suffer for him. Why would you do that if you want to win people to Jesus? Can't you just kind of tack that all later? No. It's the very gist of what it is to come to life. It's through death. It's the paradox of the gospel. And so for some of you, this is a word to pick up your cross. Make it cost. Yeah, you know, there's stuff that will just come us. we don't choose it. But then there's a, 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 a choosing of suffering for the sake of Christ. This is what Paul did, and he didn't lose heart in it. Here's the third and final way that Paul reframes suffering so that he won't lose heart. Verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I think this is one of the staggering, most staggering verses in the Bible, in the New Testament. I really mean that. And you've actually got to look at it to see why. And so if you don't have a Bible, if you don't come to church with a Bible, get a Bible, get it from the book, buy one. Make sure you are looking at these words, not just listening to the guy up front, because this is, this is bizarre. This is amazing. Though we are outwardly wasting away, outwardly means the things that can be judged from externals. Physical health, yes. Mental health, yes. But even more, relationships that are, uh, are falling apart, possessions that we're losing, things that from an external point of view looks like you just, your life's going down the toilet. Outwardly, yes. Inwardly, says Paul, what is visible to God, and in some small measure to ourselves, it's being renewed day by day. Now that's... Striking. Here's why though, because verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles. <laughs> light and momentary. Go and read chapter 6, chapter 11 later. Read through the book of Acts. I mean, he opened up this letter by describing his hardships as uh, we're, uh, what's he say, um, under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul goes, it's light. Not because he's dismissive, not because he floats on some spiritual plane that none of us, you know, garden variety Christians can access. No, he has the same spirit, he has the same grace. He is able to go, it's going to kill me, and it's light. He's able to go, this never ends. Every month, every year. And then he goes, momentary. He can say that in comparison to the eternal glory that is in heaven for us. And he can say that because like Jesus, Jesus calls us to measure our lives on the scale of eternity. So that this life, 
It's like recess at school, like a little lunch. Feels like it's never going to end. Peter says the same, doesn't he? Though you may have had to suffer trials of many kinds for a moment, he's talking about your life. It's by looking to eternity, grounded in history, but it's by looking to eternity that he can call them light and momentary. Here's the second staggering thing, and this is why you've got to look at it. He doesn't just say eternal glory comes after suffering, though it does. He says eternal glory comes because of suffering. Look at there, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. Achieving. It's, it does something. It produces something. This glory isn't just you know, inspired of and we feel... It, it's actually because of it. Which tells you this, and I'm running out of time, so I need to be quick. If you are in Christ, none of your suffering is wasted. If you are in Christ... None of your suffering is meaningless. If you're in Christ, God tells us that it does something, something glorious. So, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen. You'll lose heart for sure if you judge by externals, by outward things. We don't look at what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is, unse- since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Now, what is the, one of the most immediate applications of verse 18? Looking to spiritual things, not external worldly. What's one of the most immediate applications? To believe verse 17. And chapter 5, which we'll come to next week. But to actually believe verse 17. That compared to the glory that is to come, the suffering will be measured as light. It's not dismissing it, it's just comparing it. Though it feels like it'll never end, it'll be a moment. And that it actually achieves something. But, but I don't understand the suffering, I don't see the meaning in it. Well, that's the point. If you want to judge everything by externals, you won't see it. But in the hands of a powerful God, he says it. And so will you trust him? Suffering is one of the things that greatly tempts us to lose heart. Paul suffered more than any of us will. He didn't. Not because he was a superhuman. Because he had the same spirit of grace that we do. So that he could find himself in a Roman prison. Knowing that he is about to lose his head. And he could say, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Not because he's a super powerful human. He's told us because of the power of God. He has lent into the power and the grace of God so that he can say these things. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy chapter 4. So friends, do not lose heart 
as you too long for his appearing. Because it's coming. It's true. The power of the gospel will get you there. Suffering will actually achieve great glory. Let me pray that we might not give up on that grace. Father, we thank you again. We do this every time we come to your word together. We thank you that you speak to us, that you speak words of life and light into a dark world and into lives which we know and you know, if left to ourselves, we, we would lose heart. We would focus on the here and now. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son and all that he did for us. For those who have not got their faith in him, please work powerfully as you have been and continue to bring salvation. We rejoice that you are doing that among us. And so those who are giving themselves sacrificially, it's costly. Please, may we not lose heart. Might we celebrate in what we see in things like the baptisms that you are at work and that we can trust your words that you are working all things, the hard things, for our good and your glory. We need you to sustain us in believing all of that, in leaving all of that. And so I ask that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.